morning we'll be reading from Acts 22, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 29. We have been moving through Acts, and now we're beginning towards the end of that book. And the second half of Acts is following Paul and his missions and his journey, and he's just returned back to Jerusalem. So last week we looked at how Paul was in the temple, and the church was very concerned primarily about other Christian believers, that they would be very upset that Paul was back. Um, but however, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple, got everybody worked up, said he had brought some Greeks into the temple courts. Um, there was a riot in the city, so much so that the, the Roman, um, Roman centurion, which is stationed nearby in the Antonia Fortress, had to come down into outside the temple and um, arrest Paul, really to save his life. They didn't know what was happening except that they were killing this man. He was being beat to death in front of the temple. And so they, they arrest him, and um, they take him back to sim- somewhat safety. You're going to hear about that in our text today <clears throat> as we read into Acts 22, 1 through 29. Oh, so, I should say, we have to back up at least one verse, which you don't have up there. But Paul asks the the commander who's arrested him, the Roman commander, if he can have permission to speak to the people on the steps of, they've taken him back to the the fortress, and he's asked to speak to the people. And they say he can, so he addresses them. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him address them in Aramaic, they became even more quiet. Paul continued, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but raised in this city. Under Gamaliel's instruction, I was trained in the strict interpretation of our ancestral law. I'm passionately loyal to God, just as you who are gathered here today. I harassed those who followed this way to their death arresting and delivering both men and women into prison. The high priest and the whole Jerusalem council can testify about me. I received letters from them addressed to our associates in Damascus, then went there to bring those who were arrested to Jerusalem so that they could be punished. I just want to pause before we go to the next verse, verse 6, and just remind you that what Paul is basically saying right now is he's saying, look, I was raised under Gamaliel, this very famous um, rabbi here in Jerusalem. I was, I'm a Jewish man. I was born that way. <clears throat> and I was even going after <clears throat> the way, the Christians. So he's basically telling them all of his um, pedigree, if you will, and his story. Verse 6. During that journey about noon, as I approached, as I approached Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven encircled me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice asking me, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are harassing, he replied. My traveling companions saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. I asked, What should I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord replied, and go into Damascus. There you will be told everything that you have been appointed to do. I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, so my companions led me by the hand into Damascus. There was a certain man named Ananias. According to the standards of the law, he was a pious man who enjoyed the respect of the Jews living there. 
He came and stood beside me. Brother Saul, receive your sight, he said. Instantly I regained my sight and I can see him. He said, the God of our ancestors has selected you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear his voice. You will be his witness to everyone concerning what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins as you call on his name. Paul is basically standing up right now. He's giving his testimony. He's saying, this is my life story, and this is how I became a follower of Jesus. When they say his name, they're talking about the name of Jesus. Verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I had a visionary experience. I saw the Lord speaking to me. Hurry, he said, leave Jerusalem at once because they won't accept your testimony about me. I responded, Lord, these people know I used to go from one synagogue to the next, beating those who believe in you and throwing them into prison. When Stephen, your witness, was being killed, I stood there giving my approval, even watching the clothes that belonged to those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they shouted, Away with this man! He's not fit to live! As they were screaming, throwing off their garments, flinging them into the air, the commander directed that Paul be taken into military headquarters. He ordered that Paul be questioned under the whip so that he could find out why they were shouting at him like this. As they were stretching him out and tying him down with straps, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Can you legally whip a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty in court? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. He asked, What are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and demanded, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The commander replied, It cost me a lot of money to buy my citizenship. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. At once, those who were about to examine him stepped away. The commander was alarmed when he realized he had bound a Roman citizen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, may you help us hear your voice clearly this morning. Knowing that every time we spend time in your word, that you were the one who inspired it, and you're the one who still inspires us to hear your voice today that it has in fact been preserved and recorded for times just like this. We thank you for that, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so when you hear that story, you hear Paul giving his testimony. And he's, he's basically saying, look, I, I was at the pinnacle. I mean, he was on the fast track. He had the connections with the most prominent and most important Jewish leaders of that time in the most important Jewish city in you know, the temple city, Jerusalem. And he studied under one of the most famous rabbi we know about him, Gamaliel, from other writings of that time. So Paul was, you know, he was at the, the Harvard of rabbi schools, if you will. I don't you can pick your own school if you don't like Harvard. But he was, he had reached the top. He was an up and rising star. And he reminds them 
that he was even given letters and given the authority to go to other cities to arrest Christians. He reminds them that when they were killing Christians, one named Stephen, which we have all this recorded earlier in Acts, by the way, all this story, he says that he was standing there and even holding the coats to keep the blood off of them as they were stoning him in the streets. So Paul is laying all this out, and then he goes to his conversion story. And how he encountered Jesus on the road. And how he went to someone who said, yes, it was Jesus who did this. And how he says, I'm going to be baptized into that name. And what's so interesting is that through all of that, this crowd who's been rioting and wants him dead is silently listening. They don't go back into an uproar when he mentions the name of Jesus. They don't go back into an uproar when he says that he was converted and that he was baptized What sets them off again? What makes them go berserk? It's because he said, I was sent to the Gentiles. And then they go nuts. The outsiders, those, then remember, they are rioting because someone said that he took an outsider, a non-Jew, a Gentile, into the part of the temple that only Jews were allowed to go into. And there were warnings around the temple saying, if you go through here and you're not a Jew, this is punishable by death. So this is why they're in an uproar. This is why they are rioting. I've been reading through a really excellent new book that came out um, by Jerry Sitzer. He was one of my professors at Whitworth. He's a church historian. I've mentioned this before. And he just came out with what I at least am not well read in all of church history. But I've read a lot of church history, taken that in seminary and as an undergrad. And I think this is the most accessible, most interesting book about early church history. And it's called Resilient Faith. And he talks about the world of the first century Christians. And he makes connections with how many things are very similar to what we're going through in our culture here in the U.S. today. And I just find it fascinating, the different connections. One of the things he explains that I had not really thought a whole lot about was that, you know, the early Christian movement was primarily spreading in cities. They were household churches. We know this from the early letters and from Acts. We hear about that. We know this from other sources in history. That they were not building um, new synagogues to worship in or houses of worship of any kind yet. They were meeting in houses, usually houses of quite rich people because you needed large space. And they were in urban environments, in the cities primarily. That's why we hear Paul going from city to city to city, right? Going to where there's a synagogue and teaching and then going out into the public square and teaching. In these cities, people were pretty packed together. We know all this from archaeology. We can find this. Most people lived in uh, what we would call apartments. They were buildings that were stacked multiple stories high, not very well built, so they were quite dangerous if there was earthquakes or any fires or things like that. And they also had no indoor plumbing, So you can guess which room you might want to have. The rich people were always on the bottom floor. And then as you went higher up, there were the poor people. It's all kind of the reverse of today, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? But if you think about um, needing to carry all of your water up every time you wanted to cook or wash, you can think about why, not to mention needing to carry your chamber pot down in the morning because there's no indoor plumbing, which, by the way, they dumped out into the streets, into open sewers in most of these cities. So not the most hygienic place. The cities were cramped, they were crowded, they were hot. So most people spent a lot of their time out in the public spaces. Almost all of these cities had public squares, they had public markets, 
They had public baths, which was a very interesting thing. You wonder why, why, why is circumcision such a big deal? Well, because everybody knows, because people are getting naked in public all the time, men and women in the public baths. I mean, this was just part of the Roman culture at the time. The houses were really dark. They were stifling. There weren't a lot of windows or things like that. So people, they wanted to be out in public. Why is this important? Because it's not like our life today in the sense that we can be very private people and can keep everything to ourselves. The early Christians were living in a very public world where everybody knew what people's life was like and what people were doing. And for that reason, the Christian faith and Christians themselves were very disruptive. But maybe not by the, for the reason you would think. I mean, today you would think, you know, someone's disruptive, it's because they're doing things that are socially inappropriate, maybe they're yelling, they're screaming, they're causing a scene. Um, people can be disruptive, obviously, for political reasons. It can be very disruptive in, in any country, in any nation, to be someone who's speaking out against the government. And in Rome, that was a very dangerous thing to do. In the Roman Empire, that could be treasonous. But Christians weren't doing those things. We have no indication from any writings or any history that any of the early Christians were working to overthrow the Roman Empire or to convert the Roman Empire, which is what actually happens a few centuries later. Why were Christians so disruptive? They were disruptive because they began to flatten out the social hierarchy and the social structure. For the first time, in all these different religions that Rome had acquired, men and women were worshiping together. Now there were places where men and women worshiped together, but it usually involved some kind of sexual things in certain religious circles. This is the first time that men and women are worshiping together as equals. Freed men, rich men, and slaves are worshiping together. They're calling each other brother and sister. This is really disruptive. Jews are worshiping with, with Gentiles. Greeks and Romans are worshiping together. Africans are worshiping with them. The rich in the social hierarchy are worshiping with the poor in the social hierarchy. The slaves and the free are worshiping together. Citizens and non-citizens were treated as equals and were worshiping together. And for this reason, the Christian faith was very subversive and very disruptive even when they weren't saying Anything. In fact, we from every indication, most of the early churches, we do have people like Paul, but most of the early churches, the Christians simply wanted to be left alone. They didn't want the empire getting involved in their business. They didn't want to cause a big scene. They were simply living their lives. As they lived their lives, they were sharing about Jesus, and people were joining them. The interesting thing about the whole citizen-non-citizen thing, because it comes up prominently in our text today, you'll notice that, Right? We have this clear indication in a few places in Acts, and this is one of them, where you hear about the privileges of Roman citizenship. It was obviously important enough that some people like this Roman centurion said, I paid a whole lot of money to get my citizenship. And then Paul could warn up him and say, yeah, well, I was born a citizen. And as I was reading that this week, I, it struck me, I thought, wow, that actually does have a lot of parallels for us in the United States. Having U.S. citizenship is highly coveted. And some people would say, I spent a lot of money to get my citizenship. Uh, 
Our missionary friends who were here last week, Phil and Amy Cunningham, some of you got to meet them. Um, Phil is actually a citizen of Northern Ireland, but he was raised in Canada. They have that whole Commonwealth thing going on. But, and his wife was born in Canada, and they've been living and doing missions work out of the U.S. for so long. Um, about two decades ago, they started working on getting their U.S. citizenship. It took them a very long time and lots and lots of money. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and many years for them to get their citizenship. Our church in Marysville actually helped support them with some money to do that. And so some people could say that today. Well, I'm a U.S. citizen and it cost me a lot of money to get mine. And some of us could say, well, I was born a citizen, <laughs> Right? Everybody longs to be part of a group. Everybody wants to be part of inside of some group. Even those of us who are introverts really want to be part of some kind of community. And God designed us for this. We know this. I, I consider myself an introvert. I don't surprise people because I'm up in front of you. But, you know, when we talk about being introverts and extroverts, I like thinking of it in terms of energy. And for me, I get energy by being alone, by being away, by being by myself. That recharges me so that I can do things like this and be with all of you. And so I'll crash later today. But even introverts need to be around people. I had... I got to experience the extreme of this. For many years, I worked out at a guard station that was on the edge of the Deschutes National Forest, down by places like uh, Fort Rock, which people don't know about, and La Pine, and these out-of-the-way places. Those were the big places nearby. I mean, we were out in the middle of, on the edge of the forest in the desert in a guard station with no electricity, no telephones, didn't have cell phones yet, because I'm old. And we were out there, and... Uh, we would have these rotations, you know, when people would come on and off. And some, there was a couple of years where there were only three of us living out there. And people would rotate off on the days off. And I had these times when I was just out there by myself for hours and hours and hours. Nothing but the wind. And there were times when I was really excited to finally see people again. Especially people who I didn't work with. Because I, that's the only people I ever saw. And so we all longed. For community, we know that it's necessary, that we need it. We want to belong. Sometimes, though, when we try to find our place to belong, we do it by defining who's not a part of our group. Because you can't have an in unless there's an out. I'm in, you're out. So just a simple way of thinking about this would be sports. Right? When we go to sporting events, everyone wants you to pick a side. We've got the Super Bowl coming up next Sunday, right? Even if you don't care about the game, if you go to watch, some people are going to say, who are you rooting for? You know, and, and uh, people like my son here will push me if I don't choose a side because you've got to root for somebody, right? And then you've got to be in a comeback. But yeah, that's right. You can't enjoy a game unless you root for somebody. And so we go to, you know, we've been way involved in youth sports and coaching, and we still are. We still go to our, our kids' sporting events. And um, my wife and I are constantly broken records and bemoaning the attitude of parents, the embarrassing behavior of some of our fans, and the way people behave and act, and just screaming and yelling and red and angry. And, you know, they, and even we were at a junior high basketball game, JV basketball game, not long ago, and there was someone sitting up behind us, and there was this whole thing going on. I, mean, this, I thought these two guys behind me might get in a fight. 
and then just over this basketball game. It's so silly, right? And people do this. I'm in. This is my in-group, and you're out. You're not part of me. I've often thought how, how strange it is, because I'll be at these events, you know, these smaller events, local youth sporting events, and I'll, I'll see people across the side, like, screaming at each other and angry, and then I'll see that they're both wearing Seahawks stuff. And I think, I wonder if they ever go and accidentally sit next to each other in the Seahawks game, because then all of a sudden they're like, high five in each other and hugging each other, even if they don't know each other. It's so weird how we define these things, isn't it? I can treat you this way because you're an outsider right now. I can treat you like trash. I can scream and yell at you. But a little bit later, you'll be an insider. We'll be giving each other hugs and high fives, right? When God gave the law, he set a people apart. He set people apart for a purpose. And he defined that. He said that to Abraham, and he repeated it every time he gave the covenant. He set them apart because he wanted them to show what right living looked like. We call that righteousness. And he wanted them to be a blessing to the nations. And so when he gives the law, it sets in place what it looks like to be morally pure. What what it looks like to live a life that is right and correct. What justice looks like, how you should treat people, how you should treat outsiders, how you should treat those convicted of crimes, what fair and right treatment looks like. And so they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. The law was meant to set aside a people who would be a light to the nations. And then the law also provided everyone, Jewish or not, with a way to be part of the in-group. You could become part of the in-group by obeying this law and by following this law. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, it was mostly used as a way to say, those people are out. In fact, for the Jewish community, it was, we are God's people and the rest of them, whether they are this nation or that nation or this, you know, they, in some ways, they flattened out the social hierarchy and saying, just everybody else, they are them, the, the Gentiles. They're the outsiders. So much so that if one of them were to step into their holy place, the whole city would go up in a riot. And of course, we have to hold in our mind the image of that holiest of holy places with the thick curtain separating everybody out being torn in two from the top to the bottom upon Jesus' death. And what we're really seeing in the early church is that, that tearing and that ripping and that disruption being lived out now, out into the world. You know, there's a growing desire in the U.S. today for people to look up their ancestry. There's all those different ancestry things. I've done some of that, some research into it. You can do DNA testing now to find out your ancestry. We live in an increasingly global and mobile world. And in this country, we live in what has often been called a melting pot. And so we all, you know, like I'll tell people, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Scottish or I'm Irish, but I'm not. I mean, my family is so mixed in so many ways. My name comes from there, and I certainly have, you know, some of the red hair and other things perhaps. But, you know, our ancestry has been muddled like many, many people's have. But we want to know. I mean, we want to have that sense of identity, that sense of belonging. And that's, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But the fearful and the self-seeking reaction to this increased, you know, increasingly global community that we live in 
In this increasingly diverse and pluralistic world that we live in, the, the fearful and self-seeking reaction can be to build walls and try to pretend like it isn't happening and just keep it out so that we don't have to deal with it. Or worse, to dehumanize those who are the others, however we define them, the outsiders. So much so that even Christians can see pictures of children in other parts of the world suffering, children on our borders suffering, and they can say, but that's okay because they're not our kids, they're those kids. They deserve it. But you see, as Christians, we should never respond to these things with fear because of Jesus changed all of this. He completely turned it all upside down. How did he do that? Because he said, you all belong. When you are baptized, you are born again into a new family. Jesus' family. Brothers and sisters. And so when Christians and the early church began to walk through the streets of places like Athens, and the, the rich socially, you know, respected man sees this slave walking by and says, hi, brother, and someone hears that. That is subversive. That is disruptive. Calling them your family. Brothers and sisters, we are told to be, we share that regardless of whatever else is not in common. So our primary identity then becomes in Jesus Christ. And all of those other identities, our racial identities, our national identities, our, our economic and social identities, all of those things, even our age, they all are secondary to the primary identity that we have in Jesus Christ. I've shared stories about some of my experience with this in other places in the world. I want to share a story that comes from that book I mentioned to you. Um, Whitworth University, where Jerry teaches, they have a campus down in Costa Rica. They, students get to travel down there and do some study down there. And Jerry was down there for a time, and he was explaining how he was walking through this one part of the city, and he saw a, uh, there's all these, you know, kind of pop-up Protestant churches in different parts of the cities, amongst these large Catholic cathedrals. And he was watching this Protestant um, pastor and his wife setting up their church, and they were kind of coming out and cleaning up and doing these things. And so he said he sort of stopped on the street and was just watching them for a while. And he said then um, they began to kind of glance at him and look at him more and more and get suspicious. Like, why is this white guy standing on our street staring at us? And he could tell that they were beginning to become uncomfortable. And so the next time he looked, he, he didn't speak Spanish. And so he said what he did is he pointed up to the cross. And then he put his hand in his heart and smiled. And he said immediately they just beamed. And they walked over and they grabbed him. And they brought him on over into the church and were giving him hugs and stuff. And he said it was the most powerful experience he'd ever had. This couple he had never met. As soon as he identified him, uh, himself as a Christian, they saw him now as a brother. And there's stories like that all over the place. I mean, that's just so cool, isn't it? That that can happen. That that could happen to any one of us. We just had a holiday in our country, Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It's a reminder every year that despite being a so-called Christian nation, that we still have a lot of racial tension and inequity and injustice that we are struggling with. So what can we do as Christians? Go be better. Is that the message? Just, just do better. 
You see, the problem is this. We can't truly be better and be different unless our hearts are first changed. Until we first understand just how much Jesus has done for us. You see, we have to grasp the reality and the truth that we are the outsiders. That we are the ones who were estranged from God. Not just estranged, but we were the ones like Paul who were fighting against God. That that's in all of our hearts. Not just some of us, but Paul will say as he works out his theology in Romans, every single one of us, all of us, far from God, estranged from God, outsiders, until Jesus said, for no reason other than I love you, you're going to be an insider. You're going to be part of my family. This is the gospel. That's the simplicity of it. And yet, as you hear all I've been sharing, you can see the disruptiveness, the challenge of it. When we grasp the gravity of this, we realize that we don't need to belong to another group. We don't need to be accepted somewhere else. We don't need to keep others out of our group. Because Jesus has already given us the only identity that we will ever need, part of his family. Let's pray. Father, will you please forgive us? Forgive us for the times when we have treated others as if they are somehow less than us or undeserving, simply because they are different. Forgive us because you did not treat us this way. Lord, help us to have hearts that would be open to the reality that you were working out in your church. We are all brothers and sisters, all children of the King. God, I ask for healing, both in our churches and in our nation. We know we need it. We know it has to come from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.